Welcome to the podcast, the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and it's good to have your company. Now, today I'm going to uh, let you listen to an interview I did with Professor Harry Ferguson from Nottingham University. Um, the interview was conducted live at the Baskin um, Congress in Edinburgh at the university there. And um, it's a fascinating opportunity to listen to Harry's thoughts on child protection and, if you like, the performance of social workers in practice. He, he actually became embedded with a team of social workers uh, and used that as some very good research. And he observed them interacting with children in families. And some of his conclusions are fascinating and provocative and very helpful in a learning and a learning experience. So I'd like you to listen to Harry's thoughts and I'd like you to respond to them if you could. Remember you can to me here, um, do it on SpeakPipe or do it through Twitter at Dave Niven or um, iTunes. You can download this podcast from iTunes or Podfeed or Stitcher, any of these platforms. But just give us some feedback. It's always good to hear from you. Now, as I said, the um, interview was conducted live at the Congress. So, you know, there's, as you would expect, some background noise, but it's all perfectly good stuff. And Harry Ferguson is an old friend of the programme. So I assure you, it's good listening. Here you go. Welcome, Harry. Thanks, David. So what are you presenting here at Congress? Um, I'm giving a paper this morning, um, which is based on my research, uh, research where I've observed social workers in their practice, in how they interact with children and families, mainly on home visits. Um, and that study generated a lot of data. Um, some of which was extremely positive in terms of you know revealing very very skilled knowledgeable effective social work practice with children and parents um, but there were a relatively small number of cases that i observed um, where the social workers didn't engage with the children and so what I'm exploring in my presentation today is how children become invisible uh, in child protection work. I know from before talking with you about uh, earlier stages of this research where you really did feel that social workers had lost track a bit in terms of talking with children and in terms of prioritising the importance of talking to children. Is that still a fair point? Well, I think the way that um, the way that we need to think about this, or this is what I'm going to argue anyway, is I think there's a tendency to, well, this will, you know, listeners will be very familiar with this, there's a tendency to blame the individual practitioner when things go wrong. I mean, you only have to think of Peter Conley and the appalling treatment of the practitioners and the managers in that case, and the persecution from the media and so on. Um, so there's this kind of tendency to individualize and blame social workers for bad practice and so on. Um, in the cases that I observed where social workers uh, didn't 
effectively communicate with children or even in a very small number didn't even acknowledge the children when they were in the same room as them. Um, what I'm going to be arguing is that we need to look at why this happens in a broad kind of systemic context. Um, so in these scenarios what I've tried to do is look at you know what was going on in the organization what was the what was the workers experience in terms of what kind of preparation did they get from their team managers you know before they left the office in terms of getting focused on uh, what's the best way to deal with this referral this case um, how did they manage the journey from the office? Because one of the things I found in my research, you know, in going out with social workers, I would interview them in their cars. It was usually in their cars. Sometimes they walked to visits, but I would always interview them on the way there. And, you know, this sounds obvious in a way, but I don't think we acknowledge it enough. And that is that, you know, that sort of space between the office and getting to the child and family home, you know, is, a, is an important space for reflection and sort of getting yourself in the zone, mm. you know, mm. getting yourself kind of focused on what are you going to say, what it, you know, what is your plan? I mean, you should have got help with that from your manager in the office anyway. Um, but so that so um, so that's another stage in the process. And then there's a whole range of things that I found that can happen. Mm. Do you feel do you, do you feel that? Obviously, you know, there should be possibly more thought put into the preparation time and that possibly some managers, by implication, aren't thinking enough about preparing their workers before they go out. At the same time, I do remember you talking about the visit itself and I, I, I seem something sticks in my mind remembering that I think you were saying that social workers less frequently than they possibly used to now don't go prepared for work with children by taking maybe even things as simple as mm. crayons and colouring books or, or anything that would help yeah. the child d d d demonstrate how they're feeling. Yeah. Is that, that still yeah, fair? Yeah, I mean, the, in, in, in the research that I've done, the findings have been mixed in relation to that. Some practitioners routinely take toys and paper and pens and play-doh and games and so on with them on visits or, or, or to families or wherever they're going to see children um, but some don't um, and so when I when I began to notice this I, I, I started to explore it in the research and um, I said to us and I, I started to ask managers you know whether they were how aware they were of it you know and some of them weren't very aware of it because their main preoccupation was you know how long you know was time scales you know in the sort of performance indicators that they were working to were the kind of things that we know an awful lot about now and their impact you know um, so uh, there was that. So the whole organisational culture um, wasn't child play focused enough, really. And so one of the things I would argue is that, you know, in terms of shifting the culture of social work to be more child focused, child friendly, is that we have to kind of, you know, and I've spoken at many events around the country to groups of social workers and managers and. Um, and I've, I, so it's not just my research actually, but the kind of things that I've heard from, you know, hundreds of practitioners that I've 
had the chance to engage with is that you know some organizations don't provide these things that you know workers sort of get stuff together themselves so there's sort of like there's a whole organizational culture that like that that doesn't really facilitate child-centered creative playful practice so you know it's wrong to simply blame individual workers when they turn up unprepared in that sense to to, mm. to, to communicate with children um, because they have you know they're not getting any encouragement to do it no would you also say or in any training actually as well David I would say because that was another finding of yeah. you know even some of the really good social workers and social workers who were very skilled at working with you felt that they would like more training more continuous professional development to become even better at it talking to children listening to children full st yeah, I totally understand and, and I imagine well no, I'll ask you but I imagine that you would agree with the fact that, that one of the distractions these days is that more and more of the actual practitioner function in social work is inspectorial administrative as a, and the direct work with children is more drifting towards the voluntary sector is that a fair point? Or family support workers. You know, there's some fantastic work going on by childcare workers, family support workers. Um, but there was some fabulous work going on by social workers as well. But you're right, you know, everything that we know about the impact of bureaucracy, performance management, you know, mm. social workers having to spend long periods of time at their computers. And um, that really ate into the time that they had to work with children. So in the cases that, you know, the way that I've come to think about this is that one of the reasons that children become invisible in child protection work is because of the struggles that exist for social workers in making any children visible in a meaningful sense in terms of having enough time to devote to establishing relationships. So in my study, typically, you know, short, relatively short amounts of time was spent with children. Mm. Um, around, sort of averaged around 15 minutes. Quite often assessments were done on the basis of like one 15 minute encounter with the child. I guess Three you're talking about any, any age, I guess you're talking about, are you? That's, who's capable of actually expressing that? That's a very good point, David. Um, The cutoff point was around four or five. I mean, this is, you know, it's an, this is an interesting area around like how social workers construct childhood, to use that kind of sociological term. How do they kind of, what's their perceptions of age-related kind of capacities for children to be able to have the understanding and articulacy to talk about their experience? And and in my research, it tends to be children below the age of four tend not to be directly engaged with. And there were, this, I mean, this won't surprise people who are listening to this, who are doing this work every day, but there was a high proportion of young preschool children in the cases uh, in my studies. And um, so we, that, for me, again, kind of, you know, reinforces the need for workers to be good, not just at talking to children, but playing with them, communicating with them, Listening getting to them. down to their level. Mm. Um, Can I just take it a bit further? Because, I mean, you, you, you know, I don't think there's many practitioners who are going to disagree with you about the time and the effort that, that, that should be spent and whether they, you know, that they should be supported, trained more, etc. 
take the whole child protection process, take the process of actually the, the whole assessment process, the, the, the investigative process, and then sadly sometimes the, the, the legal process or the case conference or the whatever. So many people still keep talking about there's not enough listening to the voice of the child. The actual, you know, hearing the child, listening to the child, whether it's recording the child or representing the child. I mean, that's part of the continuum that you're really focusing on, as I understand it. Is that fair? Yeah. And I would also add to that uh, really useful summary, David, that there are issues that we haven't really addressed around where's the best place to talk to children. Um, and one of the reasons I found it, I found in my research why uh, sessions with children by social workers, say on home visits, don't last very long, is because parents interrupt them. <laughs> they either walk into the room and end it, end the encounter, or they make noises outside and they let the worker know that it's time, that your time's up. Nerves, um, do you think, about what the child might be oh, saying? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it's not hard. Yeah. It's not hard as an adult or parent to imagine what it must, how difficult it must be um, if you've got a, you know, a social worker upstairs. Mm. Bedrooms were the most you know, popular place where social workers saw children on their own in, in the home. So, you know, how, do they f how, how, would, how would they feel when their mm. child is upstairs in, in their bedroom being engaged with by a social worker, inevitably talking about what's going on in the family? So, mm. you know, and social workers told me about how anxious they got. Um, so, you know, this has got organizational implications again, because, you know, the more that we move to hot desking and kind of the sort of cutting back on office space that's typical of this contemporary era that we're in, so-called agile working and so on, the more, the less space there is in organizations, the less, the less place, space there is to do, to do work with children anywhere other than in the home. Yeah. Well, how about, I mean, take this like tangentially off here a minute, because what, what we've also got is a huge growing problem about children on social media. And to a large extent, you can argue the voice of the child gets written a lot, a lot, and their, their feelings to their friends with on on the various social media platforms and so forth. Now, you mentioned interestingly enough Peter Connolly, and I know for a fact, at least that, that I've seen two reports of this, that the day before Peter died, Tracy Connolly, his mother, was on Facebook posting all sorts of things about her fab new boyfriend and sex and drugs and rock and roll and everything like that. Whereas all the professionals maintained all the way through that they weren't aware of his presence in the house. If therefore they had been monitoring Tracy Connolly's social media, mm -hmm. there may well have been enough an opportunity to, well, who knows, but maybe a different outcome, yeah. who knows. But the same goes for the child, because we're always telling parents nowadays monitor your child don't you know let them go off into their bedroom and get seduced mm. by this that and the next thing and groomed and so forth mm. but at the same time one can imagine a real valuable source of material information mm. and possibly protective information mm. by monitoring a child's social media there's a bit of a paradox there isn't there i think the use of social media not only as a source of risk and danger to children but as a potential resource is something that you're right, we need to explore much more. There's all sorts of ethical dilemmas, isn't there, about 
I mean, it's not ethical. It's pretty clear the Baswork sort of social media ethics statements is clear that you know it's not ethical for social workers to monitor service users. But working together instructs us to do essentially what we have, anything we have to, in order to yeah. prevent abuse, so which is that absolutely. Um, so, but but I think yeah, I think. I think it, it, it's 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 a similar. It's a, it connects to the point we've been talking about about play and the mm. and, and entering children's worlds, doesn't it? Because that's something that fascinates me and that I've tried to explore in, in the research I've been doing. Is like how do workers get? I call it intimate practice. How do they get into the child's world, both in terms of their internal world, come to understand their experience in all its facets. And you know, enter, the need to enter their world in terms of their space, their bedrooms. You know, get a sense of what kind of life, quality of life they have. You know, some of the best social work practice I observed, social workers were really good at this. They didn't. You know, social workers routinely inspect home conditions nowadays, which means looking around children's bedrooms, and some will look at parents' bedrooms and all that. But you know, I think. What really struck me was that some practitioners framed this activity not just as an inspection task, but as kind of looking for resources through which that they could ex communicate with children. So like mm. a reason why they use bedrooms a lot was because bedrooms typically had a lot of the ch child's possessions like toys, pictures, so they could use those resources creatively to you know, to get down to the child's level, enter their, you know, imaginations and, and find out, you know, what their experiences are. But doing that requires one of the most valuable commodities around, which is time. And, you know, with the demands of caseloads these days, I suspect one of the, the most common cries we get from social workers is, well, you know, we just, you, you alluded to it earlier with the kind of the very short amount of time the social workers tend to speak to, you know, and speaking to children. And, you know, we all know it's a fact that you don't just walk up to a family and say, hi, I'm a social worker, trust me. <laughs> it takes time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't say to a surgeon, would you hurry up with that heart operation, please? Because, you know, you've got another 10 outside. Come on, get on with it. Mm -hmm. You just don't do that. There's certain boundaries that some professions are respected for. And, and I, I, I always get so frustrated I, I, about the lack of understanding that social workers need time to pursue their profession. Yeah, I think that's right, David. Uh, absolutely, they do need time. Uh, they need time to think about what's happening in their relationships, in their encounters with children and parents, and so on. But I would, I would, I would want to insist that, in some ways, I think the time issue is—you know—we have to be careful. We don't overplay it as a, as a problem because again you know well, one thing I learned from observing practice is that some practitioners were capable of forming very meaningful contacts with children very very quickly like within minutes you know they were charismatic practitioners you know and they were skilled knowledgeable and 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 I think one of the things we have to confront is, um, you know, what what is that about? 
you know, and, and, and it, you know, I think we have to look at some what are quite traditional social work concepts like the use of self, you know, and what, and we've got to ask, you know, sort of questions like, well, what is the self that's being used as well? And, you know, I think one of the interesting things that I want to explore further here is like, what, um, what relational capacities do, do individual, individual social workers have? Well, um, let, me, let me turn it back to you a wee bit because, you know, you, one of the hats you wear, obviously, is that you teach in, at university um, social workers, you know, um, in training. I mean, and in effect, and you're talking about interpersonal skills to a large extent and charisma you mentioned and so forth. I mean, do you, I mean, how, what, what do you find when you kind of raise that with them? Because obviously you're going to get a whole variety of humanity wanting to be social workers. That's right. <laughs> I mean, <That's> right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and uh, saying, you know, have some more charisma is not really <laughs> sort of... And then, yeah, and it's like, it's not just about, you know, it's not just about charisma in the kind of, you know, stereotypical sense of extroverts or something like that. You know, there were, and it's, it's even, it's interesting to reflect on what, what's the right kind of language to use for this even, because, you know, there were practitioners who had a kind of a quiet, humble effectiveness, you know, if, that, if I've put that, I'm not sure if i put that right, but, you know, they had a, a gentle... Um, empathetic, compassionate presence, um, and they were able to communicate very, very quickly to children um, that they were there for them. Mm. You know, and children, I could, you know, one of the great privileges of observing this kind of practice is that you can actually witness children believing in them. You know, trusting them, you can see the trust being built from the word "go." Mm. You know, and um, so yes, it's and and so I think yeah, and so training and education um, does need to. We need to focus much more on these qualities, on you know the skills, the kind of you know. We, one of the things I I hope that this research of mine can do is sort of provide just examples of how this is done, you know, so that people can learn from them and engage with them in the sense of reflecting on, well, you know, how would I do that? Would I do it another way? And um, So learning from good practice. Okay, let me take, take it a little bit further because I mean, I, I, I haven't got a, a current sense of a kind of a universal way that local authorities or employers of social workers now interview, but it used to be fairly common that the interviewing process was 99% competence-based and then there was a bit about get yourself a couple of referees and you're not going to give your worst enemy and then have a police check which just says you haven't been convicted of anything yet. I've never remembered an interview for social workers that actually said, do you like children? Yeah. And that takes me back a bit to when they're with you in the university do you think that there's enough screening out? Well, we are getting more rigorous, David. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the qualification level that's necessary, you know, intellectual ability uh, that's required to be a good social worker. And um, 
so I think you know there's there's clear expectations and requirements around having you know like our MA at Nottingham is all two one students you know our graduates all have to have two ones and I think that's going to be rolled out as an expectation over the next few years and we're also um, becoming much more rigorous in sort of profiling psychologically and so on applicants for courses much um, much more than, than it used to be absolutely absolutely uh, so this is about yeah it's about assessing as far as one can at the entry point into the profession um, people's capacities to relate in a humane empathetic authoritative way with vulnerable people okay all right Harry, we've got to get to the last, last question now, and um, probably as usual, I think, and I asked you this probably before when we talked, social workers listening to this, or even aspiring social workers listening to this, what, what kind of message would you like to give them about not, not only the work that you've been doing, but, you know, we won't hold you to it, but the conclusions you're coming to as well. Well, one of the things, one of the things I haven't said in this discussion or if I have said it I don't feel I've said it enough is just how complex social work is you know and having studied so home visits now for several years you know I was a social worker many years ago myself and you know this kind of observational research has really taken me back to just how complex the work is you know you're stepping into people's lives literally into their homes you know parents it's not unusual for parents to be afraid quite understandably of the social workers power social workers have to deal with a lot of resistance and there's all kinds of distractions that just as part of the way that people live, stepping into their lives, you know, pets, dogs, a lot of social workers are fearful of dogs, um, pet, you know, strangers in the house, trying to figure out, you know, who, who is in this, who's got contact with these children, you know, these kind of core child protection issues. Um, And in the midst of all this, you know, you have things that you absolutely have to do. You have to, children have to be seen on their own. If they're young children who are too, you know, who can't be seen on their own, then they have to be effectively engaged with alongside the parent. You know, there's obvious things that have to be done in, in communicating with parents and wider family mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So it's an immensely complex... But you'd encourage people to come forward to become social workers. Well, yeah, that's where I'm going with this. You know, I mean, are you worried this might be putting them off, David? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> but it's in. But I think the fact that the fact that workers can get through this, you know, and do it in a skilled, knowledgeable way, and there is some fantastic work going on. And you know what? What I what I've witnessed in in this research is 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 the kind of pleasure, actually, and some of the joy that not only social workers get from doing this job well, but what families get from it, yeah. you know, and I've... We don't I, hear enough about I've the good the stuff, I've do had we? the privilege yeah. of, you know, going on visits with social workers and the families would spontaneously tell me 
how much the social workers have helped them change their lives. You know, for instance, you know, parents whose children have been taken into care, sometimes at birth, and the children are now back at home, and the parents have, accept, have said to me, you know, we accept that the children, you know, we, we weren't good enough parents for the children to be safe with us, and, you know, because of the, the work that social workers have done with us, you know, within a context of other services as well. Um, we have our children now, and, you know, we're ever so grateful to what social workers have done. Harry Ferguson, thanks very much, and very good luck at your presentation at the Bascan Congress today. Thanks very much, David. Well, there was, there it was, Harry Ferguson from Nottingham University. Now, as usual, my thanks to Alba Digital Media for the technical skills in helping put this podcast together and put it out. I'll be trying to bring as many good interviews as possible over the next few weeks. I'll be interviewing um, a senior training person from uh, Papyrus, who is it's a charity who work with people, young people who are contemplating suicide. They have helplines and they have a terrific amount of um, experience and knowledge and policies that uh, we really should listen to. And that also will be later on interviewing um, Annie Hudson from the College of Social Work and seeing how that is getting on these days and are we getting as fast developments from it that we expect? What's its successes? What's its challenges? Good stuff. So come on back soon. Thanks for listening, as always. Speakpipe, remember, you can leave your messages about the programme. One click on the website socialworldpodcast.com and thanks for your company.